I first heard of John Luther Adams' music on WQXR's Meet the Composer, hosted by Nadia Sirota. In fact, I learned about a lot of composers for the first time because of that podcast, including Caroline Shaw, Andrew Norman, and Anna Thorvaldsdottir. If you're not privy to any of these composers, I seriously recommend listening to them. This was also one of the first podcasts I got into, and well, here we are now. I'm not quite sure how I even stumbled upon it in the first place, and it's been so long now my memory's probably just playing tricks on me, but I do remember the feeling of hearing John's music for the first time, especially the pieces highlighted in the podcast, which included portions of The Farthest Place and The Wind in High Places, which is what we're listening to right now. It wasn't what I would have described as ambient music, because you could tell a lot was going on, yet the pace seemed slow, as if you were literally moving mountains with each note, or watching glaciers recede in real time. Around the same time, I was living in an apartment that had roof access and a fire escape, and so after this first exposure, I would spend a lot of time listening to these pieces in full while sitting out on the roof. I was also struck by his general demeanor in the interview, which was cordial, well-spoken, and he seemed to choose every word with great intent. This combined with the fact that he spent most of his time in a cabin in the woods of Alaska made him seem like a mythic figure, like the great composers that were forced to study in school. Only John was still alive, which felt special, but also a little strange. It seems a little silly to say now, but at the time I just wasn't as aware of many 20th century composers, let alone ones that were still living. Anyways, I'm really looking forward to these next two episodes. This is the real meat and potatoes of my thesis. Bertner's pod will be next week, but without further ado, let's dive into the music of John Luther Adams. My name is Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. generally not a fan of reports that begin with so-and-so was born on this date and in this town, blah, blah, blah. But in this instance, I do think it is important because after all, this is a podcast about place. And it is also important to understand how John winds up in Alaska. So here it goes. John Luther Adams was born in Meridian, Mississippi in 1953. He was a self-professed troublemaker, got himself kicked out of several high schools, but wound up living in Macon, Georgia, where he began his musical studies at Mercer University and then later attended Wesleyan College in Connecticut. His earliest musical inspirations were Frank Zappa and Edgar Varese. Zappa often spoke of Varese's influence on his own music and included a quote by Varese on several of his album covers. The particular quote that caught Adams' attention was, the present day composer refuses to die. 
This quote is part of a manifesto created by Verez when he established the International Composers Guild in 1921. The full quote reads, The present-day composer refuses to die. They have realized the necessity of banding together and fighting for the right of each individual to secure a fair and free presentation of his work. Adams would later study with James Tenney and Morton Zabotnik at CalArts, both of whom are well known for their contributions to electronic music, which is kind of surprising considering Adams is not really the first name that comes up when people think of electronic music. Nevertheless, his studies at CalArts were transformative, even though they also left a lot of uncertainty upon graduation. Despite being accepted to graduate schools, Adams never felt like he truly fit in with them. Them, in this case, being what we would consider traditional composers writing traditional music, and I'm using a lot of scare quotes here. Adams hated Los Angeles. Despite it being an exciting period of discovery for him, he remarked that he felt lost. He added, quote, It made me long for home, which I never felt I really had because we moved all the time and because I'd grown up here and there in equally homogenous suburban surroundings. So there was a deep, inarticulate hunger to find a place in which I might belong, end quote. In 1974, Adams abandoned his academic pursuits and moved to Alaska, where he worked as a guide and environmental activist for the Northern Alaska Environmental Center. This was one of the more eye-opening aspects of my research because apart from composing, I really had no idea what else Adams was doing up there. One of the more noteworthy organizations he was a part of was the Alaska Coalition, which argued for the passage of the Alaska Lands Act of 1980 in order to preserve the Alaskan wilderness. Musically, he became the principal timpanist and percussionist with the Fairbanks Symphony Orchestra and the Arctic Chamber Orchestra. Conductor Gordon Wright was especially important in programming his music and allowing Adams to launch a new music concert series, further exposing him to new works. His grad school, as he referred to it, expanded when he became the music director for KUACFM, the Fairbanks public radio station, where he conducted interviews with such composers as Morton Feldman, Conlon Nankaro, Peter Garland, and Ingram Marshall. Beyond the early inspiration drawn from Zappa and Verez, Adams continued to be inspired by composers, poets, and painters throughout his career, including, but not limited to, John Cage, Lou Harrison, Henry Cowell, John Haynes, Barry Lopez, and Ellsworth Kelly. It's a little tricky to try and place Adams into a particular musical box or genre. Some scholars have tried, often describing his music as minimalist or postmodernist because he uses reduced musical material and avoids expressive rhetoric. Despite the issues with defining Adams's musical style, he shares a closer kinship musically to Morton Feldman than he does to Philip Glass or Lamont Young. Known for soft dynamics and nearly devoid of articulation, author Kyle Gann argues that, quote, the main thing that Adams inherited from Feldman was the permission to limit his materials, to give the listener unarticulated color with little surface detail to hang on to, end quote.
Adam seems to prefer using, quote, sonic geography as a metaphor for explaining his music because it keeps it rooted in a sense of place, which is often how Adams approaches writing music, rather than attempting to follow a specific compositional process. That is not to say that these approaches aren't there, he just isn't deliberately starting from that framework. In fact, around the time that he was composing Become Ocean, he remarked how his compositional process included lying awake at night and trying to mentally record what he was hearing in his head until he fell asleep. And whatever he remembered the next day may or may not make it onto paper. And this process repeated over and over and over again until the piece was done. Early examples of pieces that establish his vision of sonic geography include songbird songs, night piece, Earth in the Great Weather. Each of these pieces aspires to recreate a sense of place without trying to accurately transcribe or illustrate what the place or song sound like. The combination of Adams's desire to create a sonic geography and the monochromatic aesthetic of Feldman matures in pieces like Dream in White on White and In the White Silence, both of which even limit themselves to using only the white notes of the keyboard. Quick tangent here to note that Adams has also dabbled in using mathematical formulas to frame his compositions, which he calls sonic geometry. This is largely exhibited in the different movements that make up Strange and Sacred Noise, his colossal piece for percussion quartet. Each movement is based on a different mathematical structure including a Cantor dust, Sierpinski gasket, and the Menger sponge. And that is about where my knowledge of fractals begins and ends. In the program notes for Dream in White on White, Adams reinforces the desire to create a white aesthetic using the white tones, but also by using broad washes of whole and half notes, white notes of a different sort. The use of harmonics, unstopped notes, mutes, and no vibrato further establish a white tonal palette. The piece opens up with the slowly moving white notes played on a string orchestra, soon joined by a separate string quartet. The entrance of the harp indicates forward motion as if someone or something has appeared on the horizon.
spite of all this, Adams wanted this piece to move beyond being about place, but instead having the piece be place itself. This radical conception of music's capacity to engender the enormity of place seems to push the boundaries of what had previously been a trend by composers. Continuing in the compositional vein of Dream in White on White, In the White Silence shows Adams further explaining his methodology for establishing a white sound. In the score he writes, quote, White is not the absence of color, it is the fullness of light. Silence is not the absence of sound, it is the presence of stillness, end quote. He notes how painter Kazimir Malevich and John Cage embraced whiteness and silence as integral components to their artistic creation. However, Adam seeks to go beyond depicting the landscape with his music. In the program notes for In the White Silence, he writes, quote, I no longer want to be outside the music listening to it as an object. I want to inhabit the music, to be fully present and listening in that immeasurable space which Malevich called a desert of pure feeling, end quote. Within the White Silence, Adam aspires to create a desert-like aesthetic, which is a coincidence considering that this piece was composed almost two decades before he moved out of Fairbanks. Spoiler alert, he lives in the desert now. Nevertheless, the idea that his music is something that could be inhabited is expressed by Adams and listeners alike. Another way in which Adams adjusts the listener's expectations is by rearranging the orchestra. According to the score, The strings are divided into a string quartet and a string orchestra, with the orchestra seated upstage in a wide arc and the quartet in a smaller arc downstage. The celeste is seated behind and between the quartet violins, while the harp should be seated behind and between the viola and the cello of the quartet. Finally, two vibraphones are positioned between the orchestra and the quartet. Adams' period of writing music based on white key notes seems to culminate in The Immeasurable Space of Tones in 2001. In the program notes for this piece, Adams recounts how Irish art critic Brian O'Doherty responded to Mark Rothko's painting Number no. 5 by saying, quote, After this, the lines disappear completely. End quote. It was seen as Rothko's breakthrough into a mature style, just as Adams views this piece as a leap forward in his compositional maturity. Having reached this point, Adams appears to move beyond trying to have his music reflect a static environment or several shades of color. His later works display a desire to keep expanding his capabilities as a composer, continuing to find new ways of illustrating landscape through tones, and always reflecting on how place influences art. This marks a turning point in his music, shifting away from large orchestral works towards chamber works and dalliances with electronic mediums. The direction of his career in this period further challenges him to scale his own mountain of possibilities and redefine himself as a composer with the place you go to listen.
The program notes for In the White Silence feature Adams contemplating the notion of music as place and place as music. Similarly, Dream in White on White is one of his first attempts to compose a piece that is place rather than emulating one. This continued desire and obsession drives his compositional process with The Place You Go to Listen as the crowning achievement. The Place is an audiovisual installation designed to capture and translate raw data into music through sonification, which you all know because you listened to last week's podcast. This data largely consists of meteorological or geographic information that, when processed through a computer in real time, produces a unique display of sound and light, always changing in response to the constant shifts in the outside world to produce an ephemeral experience that has inspired pilgrimages by fans of Adams's music, myself included. The name is derived from the Inupiaq word Naalangiagvik, which according to legend is the name of a place where an Inupiaq woman would regularly visit to hear the sounds of local animals and unseen sounds. The pilgrimage-like ethos of this myth inspired Adams to create his own place that would bring unseen sounds to life. The geological data that sources the sounds of the place include daylight, temperature, seismic activity, etc. This material is then synthesized in real time using sonification and the signal processing software MaxMSP to produce a constantly changing audio and visual display. A random number generator is also used to filter pink noise, distinct from white noise in its higher frequencies. The use of pink noise as opposed to white noise is distinct because pink noise often occurs in nature in the form of wind or waterfalls, and therefore provides different shades of sound to the place that mimic the sounds found in nature. The place where you go to listen is housed in a small room of the Museum of the North at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Mounted on the wall, there are six speakers that emit the positions of the sun and moon. As their position changes relative to the horizon, their representative sound moves accordingly around each of the speakers. The separation between sun and moon is further realized as day and night choirs, with the day choir corresponding to the sun and the night choir corresponding to the moon. A program called Sun Angles is employed to track the position of the sun above and below the horizon and around the cardinal points at any given time. This information is processed to determine both the sound frequencies and light hues that are projected in the room at any given point. Seismic activity is emitted from two subwoofers in the base of the wall panels, while geomagnetic activity is heard through six speakers in the ceiling. This creates a unique spectrum of textures that layer on top of each other, much like a Jackson Pollock painting, and is described by Adams as an orchestration of untouched material. Nevertheless, the place does not function like a traditional piece of music. It has no beginning, middle, or end. The instruments are not tangible objects, and the performers are forces of nature. Meaning that in reality, the place could theoretically be tuned to any location on Earth, not just in Alaska. Despite this, there is still a human element that affects the composition. As we affect our climate, the daily movement of these natural forces also change, further affecting the sound of the place. The other major feature of the place is its light display. One of the walls of the room has a frosted glass surface lit by fiber optic cables. 
there are two fields of color that extend the full range of visible light throughout the seasons. Each field moves from opposite ends of the spectrum, and they eventually meet in the middle. The day field moves from red to orange to yellow, while the night field moves from violet to blue to cyan. By turning natural forces into an audiovisual experience, Adams effectively creates a narrative that can be understood by humans, even if they are not aware of it. The effect of the place is one of self-reflection and stasis, allowing the world to move through its daily activities and offers a window into how the world functions, regardless of whether or not humans involve themselves. In this case, there is a daily narrative that occurs, and the place can serve as a translator, allowing people to observe this as it unfolds in real time. I was fortunate enough to experience the place where you go to listen while I was in Alaska. The following is my experience. There is a door separating the place from the rest of the museum. On one side of the door is a sign that says, please enter quietly. On the other is an interactive video plaque summarizing the different sounds one might expect to hear. As I entered the room, I'm feeling very excited, almost anxious. This is one of the main reasons for visiting Alaska in the first place. What if I didn't have the musical experience I expected? I'm confronted with another plaque when I enter the room, and this one has words from Adams himself, explaining the inspiration and conception of the place. After turning a corner, the room opens up to reveal the big light display and solitary bench. I am the only one here, so I take a seat on the bench and begin to do my best attempt to participate in some form of deep listening, trying to make out all the different sounds and patterns. My concentration is quickly broken as two men, roughly my age if not a little younger, came in and sat against the wall behind me and immediately began meditating. Over the next 10 minutes or so, there were a few other people who came in, though not for very long. Perhaps the space was too small for them Perhaps they were underwhelmed at the lack of visual activity taking place. Most likely, it was because there were these three dudes sitting there with our eyes closed, breathing deeply. Despite the informational plaques, many people seem to simply pass through the room with little to no regard toward what the room is conveying and its meaning. During my visit to the place, most other attendees spent no more than two minutes in the room. That is, if they even make it into the room in the first place. Perhaps the biggest limitation to experiencing the place is that visitors are beholden to the museum's hours of operation, which is typically 9 to 5. Making some of the light and sound combinations, the Aurora Borealis for example, nearly impossible to experience. There is also no live stream viewing or listening experiences set up at this time. Nevertheless, as I discovered when I was there, one of the things that makes the place unique is that it is nearly impossible to experience it alone. It is likely that some of one's time spent in the room will be shared with others, meaning that their presence also affects what you see and hear. The rustling of coats, the sound of zippers opening and closing, muted whispers, heavy breathing, all of these sounds or noise depending on your expectation of your experience, and one's awareness of such sounds contributes to the totality of experiencing the place. In that respect, the place becomes an avatar for how we as humans interact with each other and nature. 
nature will continue through its daily progressions, and while experience it can be a solitary act, the reality is that interacting with nature is a communal act, with everyone having different intentions and expectations when they choose to experience the world. It begs the question that has sort of formed the thesis of my research and this podcast. Does the place create the artist, or does the artist create the place? After nearly 40 years, John Luther Adams finally left Alaska. To those who knew him, or at least felt like they knew him through his music, such a departure seems inconceivable. He's become inextricably linked to the land. He used to tell people that his life began there and that he would likely die there. In a candid essay published in The New Yorker in 2015 that I highly recommend reading, Adams explained several reasons for finally making the decision to leave Alaska including the death of several friends, climate change, and periods of depression. In 2014, he and his wife Cindy began living between New York and the Mexican desert. As Adams recounts, quote, In Mexico, any lingering fears I had about losing my inspiration soon disappeared amid the excitement of learning a new landscape, new weather, new light, new plants, and new bird songs in the Sonoran Desert at the edge of the Pacific. There, in recent years, I've composed the concert-length choral work Canticles of the Holy Wind, Become River for Chamber Orchestra, and my largest symphonic work to date, Become Ocean. Become Ocean has become Adams' most successful work to date for several reasons. It was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2014 and a Grammy for the Best Contemporary Classical Composition in 2015. It even inspired Taylor Swift to make a donation of $50,000 to the Seattle Symphony's music education programs. In addition, it has become the first in a trilogy of pieces known as the Become series. Become Ocean is for a large orchestra that is split into three smaller ensembles. These ensembles represent different prime number relationships, three, five, and seven. And each ensemble performs a series of waves, each one rising and falling in pitch and dynamics at different rates based on those respective numbers. This results in the orchestra overlapping or ebbing and flowing with one another throughout the 42 minute duration of the piece. In fact, there are only three times in which all three orchestras crescendo together to meet in the same place. The piece is also a palindrome, resulting in the piece sounding like one huge wave comprised of many smaller waves, 
although the formal structure of the piece is secondary to the experience of the piece. Adams has said that despite being composed for a concert hall, Become Ocean is actually best absorbed through a recording because that is the best way to experience the piece by being directly in the middle of all three orchestras. The title of the piece is borrowed from a John Cage poem in honor of Lou Harrison, in which he compares Harrison's music to many rivers coming together into a vast ocean. Quote, listening to it, we become ocean, end quote. With Become Ocean, Adams encouraged listeners to engage with the piece such that they feel they become one with the piece. They themselves have become ocean, or something much larger than themselves. There is, unfortunately, an additional ecological undertone to the title. The rapid recession of glaciers in the north may very well result in rising sea levels that consume large swaths of our planet, in which we may literally become ocean. This sort of prophetic doom hangs over the piece and has inspired Alex Ross to write, quote, it may be the loveliest apocalypse in musical history, end quote. The next piece in this Become series is Become River, but in order to talk about Become River, we have to go back and re-examine the inception of Become Ocean. Adams had already received the commission from the Seattle Symphony and had begun working on the music that would become Become Ocean. However, during a dinner meeting he had with percussionist and conductor Stephen Schick, Adams mentioned that part of the origin of the piece stemmed from Cage's poem about Lou Harrison in which he describes the music as a river in Delta. The final line is what inspired Adams to compose Become Ocean, but Schick encouraged him to write Become River for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, saying, you're already composing this ocean, maybe all you need to do is go back upstream a little bit and compose the river in Delta, end quote. Adams promptly set aside Become Ocean until Become River was complete. Become River is much smaller in scope compared to Become Ocean, it is scored for a chamber orchestra and features an inverted setup. The violins are elevated in the back of the ensemble and the remaining members are arranged on a decline. It is also half the length of Become Ocean. According to Adams, it appears that Become River follows a similar form in which the sections of the orchestra move through different speeds, gradually moving from high to low, carrying the listener downstream. Despite being composed before Become Ocean, Become River is often talked about as the second piece in the trilogy. This is mainly because the conceit for Become Ocean came first, but also in part due to the fact that the third piece, Become Desert, is the same length as Become Ocean. Become Desert concludes this trilogy of pieces that Adams didn't even really intend to write. The origin of its title is a reference to a quote from the Mexican poet Octavio Paz, quote, close your eyes and listen to the singing of the light, end quote. There is also only one word of text recited throughout the piece, luz, 
which is the Spanish word for light. To Adams, this is the essence of the piece. Become Desert challenges the scope of Become Ocean by splitting up the orchestra into five different sections, each moving at a different pace around the audience. The manner in which the musicians are positioned throughout the hall is also different. As Adams explains it, quote, I decided to disperse the strings all over the stage with four harps and four percussionists interspersed among them. The other four choirs are elevated on high risers, in balconies, lofts, or boxes around the performance space. Upstage, a choir of 16 woodwinds and a percussionist playing crotales is elevated as high as possible above the strings. A choir of 8 horns and a percussionist playing chimes is elevated on one side of the space. A choir of 4 trumpets and 4 trombones and a percussionist playing chimes is elevated on the other side of the space. And a choir of singers and handbells is elevated at the rear of the space." End quote. Though deserts characteristically contain little to no water, to Adams, one still swims in the light that defines a desert, making every piece in the trilogy have some connection to swimming. With each piece in the trilogy, the placement of the ensemble is as much a reflection of how music can exist in a space as the space existing in the music. Since leaving Alaska, Adams has made several comparisons between the tundra and the desert. Quote, the tundra and the desert aren't as different as they might seem. Climatically speaking, the Arctic is a desert. Both landscapes have few, if any, trees. Both have enormous skies and extraordinary qualities of light. And for me, the feeling of being on the tundra or in the desert is remarkably similar. End quote. Both the desert and the tundra are defined by their scale, the depiction of which has become a hallmark of Adams's music. Nadia Sirota remarks that the translation of scale from Adams's music wipes away any context. Listening to an instant of his music gives one a sense of the landscape, but it would be completely different from another isolated instant that occurs later in the piece. Adams's treatment of scale in his music is different than that of most classical composers like Beethoven or Wagner who often create their sense of scale through the enormity of volume or musicians. The emotions and philosophical questions evoked in the music of Beethoven and Wagner can also be found in Adams's music, but Adams often creates these themes in the context of existing in a particular place and often with smaller ensembles. Adams' music is at once both within one's grasp and so distant that it is unattainable. As we'll see in the music of Matthew Bertner, scale is so intimate you need a microphone to hear it. Thanks again for tuning in. I've linked several different reading and listening suggestions based on today's episode. Also, since we've made it this far, I do want to encourage you to please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. 
it really does help get the pod to a wider audience. Until next time, keep your ears to the earth.